Hello and welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Today's episode is Eccentrics, Good versus Evil, in which we'll discuss two eccentrics and what their motives might be as presented and contemplated through Star Trek. If you're new here, I'm Victoria and with me is my co-host T. Star Trek Sundays is a podcast through which we and our guest crew examine the philosophical themes presented in Star Trek every Sunday at 10 a.m. PST on Clubhouse. Our goal is not to come to conclusions on the themes we discuss, but to spark contemplation and conversation, which we hope continues after the live recording and into the lives of the listeners of the podcast. At the top of the room, we have pinned our Star Trek Sundays website, StarTrekSundays.com. There you'll find our links to our published podcasts, my captain's log and guest blogs, links to our upcoming watch lists, and our Star Trek Sundays trading post. The Star Trek Sundays podcast is available one week after the live show on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and from anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please consider subscribing to our channels as it helps us reach others who might enjoy the show. T, these were two more great episodes that fill in Data's story arc a little bit more. Before we talk about the episode and what's upcoming... Can you tell me your general thoughts about how Star Trek addressed the idea of eccentrics and exposed their goodness and evilness, and then tell us how you came to curate the episodes we watched this week? You bet, Victoria, and thank you. Eccentricity refers to a person's unusual or quirky behavior that sets them apart from others, often in a positive or endearing way. Eccentric individuals may have peculiar habits or interests, and the characters in Star Trek always find a way to push those habits to the extreme. As Trekkies, we're well aware of Star Trek's rich history of exploring complex and thought-provoking themes, and with this week's topic, it's no exception. With its multitudes of richly diverse and quirky characters, Star Trek has expertly tackled the concept of eccentricity, offering a multitude of memorable and truly captivating portrayals of individuals who march to the beat of their own drum. In addition, Star Trek has never shied away from the timeless struggle between good and evil, and has, in fact, tackled this complex and often controversial subject with remarkable insight and nuance. From the Klingons' relentless pursuit of power to the Romulans' insatiable thirst for conquest, Star Trek has consistently blurred the lines between good and evil, creating a captivating and highly thought-provoking examination of the human condition. I chose these two Star Trek Next Generation episodes, Brothers and the Most Toys, to explore the theme of eccentricity and the struggle between good and evil because they really put that struggle in the spotlight. These episodes feature eccentric characters Dr. Soon and Fajo, who blur the line between right and wrong and raise questions about consequences of our actions and the morality of the world around us. So I'm excited for an in-depth discussion of eccentrics, good versus evil. Thanks for that, T. That's great. Well, let's start with The Most Toys. Can you provide a summary of the episode The Most Toys to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it what it was about? And then I have a question for you. Definitely. I remember being on the edge of my seat the first time I watched this as a small child um, or as a teenager. Uh, the Most Toys from uh, The Next Generation Season 3, Episode 22, 
first aired on the 7th of May in 1990. In The Most Toys, while transferring material from a trader's vessel to the Enterprise, Data is believed to have died in a shuttlecraft explosion when in fact he's been kidnapped by the trader, who is a collector of one-of-a-kind collectibles. I chose this episode because Fajo is a very eccentric character with a lot of expressive characteristics and a very strong need to possess things that makes him an interesting case study. Indeed, thank you. Yeah, there was so much to like about this episode. I love Data's refusal to comply with Fajo's demand to perform. That was just awesome. We were like, go Data, right? With respect to the eccentricities of Fajo, I found it difficult to flip the script on this one and see him or his eccentricities as good at all. And I really enjoyed the exercise of trying to do so, as you put it to us. What was interesting in what you just said now that he had a strong need to possess things that make him an interesting case study. As you were saying it, I was thinking that you were going to say he has a very strong need to possess things that make him an interesting person because that seemed to be his motive. Wasn't because he just loved these things, but because of how they showed him off to his friends. Obviously, collecting can go too far as seen in the most toys. But to what extent can it be healthy? So I want to put it to you and the crew. I'm wondering, do you have a collection that you love? And why do you love it? And a twist. Do you think that a collection represents the owner's own eccentricities? Yes, I do. I'm, I'm a fan of art. And so I have an art collection. And that art expresses itself in a couple of different ways. One of the ways that it expresses itself is um, in supporting artists that I like. So I'll just buy their art when I see it from coming from them because I really like it. Um, but I tend to target sort of independent artists and support them pretty exclusively until I find, you know, another artist, which I add to my, you know, art collection, as it were. And then the other part of that is I actually spend a bit of time working on photos of my own from real life, you know, and editing them and putting them together in, uh, you know, stuff like that. And it's one of those things where I used to really enjoy this a lot, um, taking photos. I used to have a camera that I, you know, took with me everywhere. And it was, it was one of those things that to this day, I still go back and look at the collections sometimes. And I'm really proud of them because it's, it's one of the things that reminds me of the past and keeps me grounded to where I came from. And I tend to forget things a little bit and not just, you know, just because I'm getting older and I tend to forget. And then when I go back and I see the memories, it brings back other memories and helps me not forget uh, the things that I think I should probably remember. That is really interesting. The thing about memory is interesting. And I know we've talked about this with a few people uh, and some of the crew in the past. And um, one of the things I said about memory and forgetting was that if you've forgotten it, then you're not really suffering 
right? It's only when somebody reminds you of something and then you forget. I, I know what you mean, though. When I find something and it reminds me of a time that I hadn't thought about in a long time, I get like a bit of a rush, which is great. But in the meantime, I don't feel like I've missed out on anything. So maybe memory and reminiscing is something that we should talk about at some point. Because I do know that Star Trek has covered like, why do people like, why do people collect things? Or why do they um, have uh, sentimental items? So that's something to explore as well. Okay, well, welcome to the stage, Gela, Babs, Twist, Steve, Rachel. We'll start with you, Gela. Do you have a collection that you love, and why do you love it? I have what might be called a collection of um, stuffed animals that were mine from a young age. I pretend that they are my daughter's now. They are in her room, but they're really still mine. Um... And the other thing is I collect people. Um, that sounds a little bit like Fajo, but um, what I mean is that I keep track of people who I have, you know, from all parts of my life. And, you know, people do like a, a culling of their Facebook friends list. I very rarely do that because I want to randomly come across somebody I haven't thought about in a long time and reach out and say, hey, you know, haven't we haven't talked in a very long time and see what happens. Uh, so those are those are two two things that one could what one might call collections. Great. Thank you for that, Kella. Babs, are you available to answer the question? Do you have a collection mm-hmm. that you love and why do you love it? I do think that collections uh, speak to the, per se, the identity of a uh, of the collector. Um, I have two collections. One, I have a I had to uh, declutter a lot of my stuffed animals, so don't feel bad, Gela. Um, I have my Squishmallow collection. I I trimmed it down to just Squishmallows and a couple special ones, so I have like eleven stuffed animals there. And then the Peace Day Resistance, the biggest collection I have is my collection of cat items. Um, yes, I am a crazy cat lady. Yes, it's true. I'm, I live like a spinster at 32 years old. Um, I have cat things everywhere in my bedroom. Uh, uh, earrings, uh, stuffed animals, of course. Uh, I have a, ta- a tapestry that is a cat mandala. I have another tapestry that's a watercolor lion's head. Um, four of my seven tattoos are cats. So um, I'm a little bit of a crazy cat. So, yeah. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> that's great. Um, uh, welcome to the stage. We've got more people on stage. Jamesy, Marcus, Johnny, Sin. I know uh, ev- everybody will have something to share because I, I, I know each of you uh, a little bit too. So we'll move on to Twist. Uh, hey, Twist, thanks for coming. Um, do you have a collection that you love and why do you love it? I um, I do. I have two different types of collections. I have, I'm a lepidotrist, so I have a collection of butterflies in cases. 
uh, if this is supposed to be a testament to the type of person that I am, I have no idea what it means, especially when it comes to the second thing I collect, which is miniature spoons. I don't know why. I just really, really like them. I like both of them. I like the way that they both look. I love the way that the butterflies just are shaped. I think they're gorgeous. I think they're amazing. The iridescence on some of the wings are just incredible. I like looking at their Latin names. I, When it comes to the antique spoons, on the other hand, it's the antiquity of them. The older the spoon, the smaller the spoon, the more handcrafted it is, the more interested I am. I have one particular spoon that I really, really love, and it is, um, you could see all the dents from where the gentleman or whomever smithed this silver spoon. Most of these small little spoons are, are, are ones that you would put in little honey pots, you know, when you serve tea, like fine, fine tea dining or anything like that. I, I, the rest of them, I have no idea what their original use was. I have another one that I really, really appreciate that actually says 19 or 1842. Now cooking with gas. It used to, it was an advertisement. They used to this this was this spoon was used as an advertisement. So this, I just I just love the history and the antiquity when it came, comes to spoons, and I love the symmetry and beauty of the butterflies. Thank you. So I. It's interesting. So I have, um, partly by sort of inheritance, um, some collector spoons. You know, those little ones that would have like a little um, you know, Eiffel Tower on the top and people would hang them in a cabinet or something and show off all these spoons from traveling. So I have a couple from my aunt and I actually use them for spoons, for tea and coffee. Do you use your collector spoons I do not I do not I do not even I barely even touch them with my my bare skin a lot uh-huh. of them are silver and so I would wear gloves to have to polish them so that they don't tarnish wow true collector very nice okay Steve on to you thank you again for hosting the watch party so let me put the question to you then Do you have a collection that you love and why do you love it? And if you want to share, what do you think that represents about you and your eccentricities? You know what? I, I, I would have to point to my DVD collection. Um, I've been collecting uh, DVDs of every movie and show that I just thought was awesome and wanted to just keep uh, forever. I, I keep them in these bundles I've got loads of series and movies, a lot of them stuff that I just think of as like, it's such classic uh, film and it, it really deserves to be an education of its own right, um, of like life skills. And I think what that says about me uh, probably probably stems a lot from the fact that, uh, as I explained to a lot of people, I, I was uh, in part raised by the television. So <laughs> it was pretty much all I had as a kid was uh, TV, some video games, not even like able to like buy what video games I wanted, but just I got what I had and I, I made the best of it. And, you know, there, I had a lot of issues like where I might go to school like a two hour drive away from where I lived. So there was no real like uh, making friends after school for me. And it was really hard. Maybe what that could say about me as an eccentric is that I I really 
I really appreciate the art form of uh, performance. Thank you for that, Steve. Rachel, how about you? Do you have a collection that you love? And can you tell us why you love it? Well, uh, the first thing I think of is my collection of books and journals. Like, I, I just love, love collecting them. And uh, there's, I have like tons of journals that are really, they're either like very special journals, uh, like specialty ones, or they're um, just beautiful. Oh, like their cover is just beautiful and it appealed to me. And so I, I have a bunch that I haven't even written in yet. So I hope to fill them out one day. But the, the thing why books meant so much to me is when I was younger, I fell in love with stories through the books I read. And um, it became a form of escape for me from what I was dealing with. And the books became like my friends and like my, um, yeah, my, my friends and my company. And uh, they really helped me through a lot of years of hard hard stuff that I went through and so they're really special to me what it means about me I think is that I'm a storyteller as well and so I appreciate um other storytellers I love that so much I'm so the the whole thing about storytelling and I, I I see the same thing with with what Steve said about um DVDs uh Steve do you watch the DVDs do you do you get them out and put them on I actually get them out often for watch parties with friends. Like they, we go, well, you should watch a movie. And I'm like, I'm bringing my whole collection. I feel like that's just another form of storytelling. Right. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that Rachel and Steve. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Indeed. I, I was going to ask T what, what he was thinking. So, cause that was a, a great timing there T. Let's move to you, Jamesy. Do you have a collection that you love and why do you love it? So, so I've had a lot of costumes over the years and I've always saved like a piece of all those costumes. So my, uh, my costume wardrobe is, is like always kind of fun for me to look at and try to figure out how to like blend two characters together for a thing that I want to do. Um, I really related to the DVD collection thing because I think very hard about what DVDs I want to be on display. If somebody comes and is a guest in my home, I feel like we're, we kind of, I'm, I'm trained to kind of look at what DVDs people have to be noticed. Uh, you know, what are the, what are the movies or the books that these people want to be defined by? But the, the collection that I think is probably the most interesting for me is I have this really quirky rock collection where uh, they don't, end up together. Some of them end up in aquariums, some of them end up in the yard. But pretty much every time I go somewhere, I have this idea of like, if I take something from here, then like, it makes the memory more real. And it's true, because when I'm cleaning my aquarium, or when I'm gardening, um, it reminds me of those, those vacations or, or those events. Wow, there seems to be a, a pattern then. So the collections are not only because they're beautiful, but often people collect things as souvenirs. That's interesting. Uh, Marcus, how about you? Welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Do you have a collection that you love and why do you love it? Yeah, I have um, a few with a running theme um, through them. The first one would be, which is unfair to call it a collection because as quickly as I collect them, I also give them away. And this is part of my practice in non-attachment. And these are hand-carved pendants. And I like to get them from the artist that creates them. 
I get to enjoy them for a while, but then I'll give those away. The second one is my art collection, which is largely um, in storage. And this is because one day I want to open up um, a plant medicine retreat and I want these pieces of art there for visitors to enjoy. And the third one is a collection of precious and semi-precious gemstones. I've tried to collect as, as varied as a number of them as, as I possibly can. And there's an intention behind these that comes from an experience I had on like walks in these um, kind of spiritualist groups, people that are getting together to, you know, just experience each other really. And, it, it, you know, be at one with ourselves and nature and, and, and whatnot. And I would bring semi-precious gemstone beads. As I laid them all out so that people could make their own bracelets, they really were just so captivated by them and the beauty of them. And they, there's an experience there of exploring the different kinds. And, and they, I just saw them really engrossed in that experience. So with this collection of gemstones I have now, the intention is to set them into a resin table. And this resin table would be in my retreat in the future. And the purpose of it is to create an experience, the experience of, you know, being able to see all the stones. People might know what some of them are, but not know what all of them are. And they get to explore that. And it's this inquisitive you know, nature that I like, and I'm trying to create that experience um, with the table. So I would say that the common link here is that I like to bring beautiful experiences to people more so than I just enjoy accumulating these. I do intend for them to be enjoyed by others. I really like that, Marcus. Um, and I, I've heard you say this before, that you collect things and then you give them away. And I think that I sit with that sometimes because I think that would help me be able to uh, appreciate the joy I get when I end up acquiring something. But there's also an, uh, a joy in letting it go, not just because it frees me up to have space for something new in my life, but also it's a joy to be able to please somebody else with the gift or something special. So I'm going to think more on that. I really appreciate that. Sin, welcome back to Star Trek Sundays. Do you have a collection that you love and why do you love it? I do collect things and um, let's see. <laughs> There's a lot of things I collect. I can say that the most um, important things I've collected really are um, probably the uh, one would be uh, plays that I've done for me. It's just like when I do a play, you know, like afterwards that, you know, I always save those uh, scripts that we have, you know, usually go and you buy your own copy or make an enlarged one. So you can do lots of notes and stuff. So they're by the end of your rehearsal process and doing the whole show, you've created kind of a family within that, that, that structure of that show. Um, whether it's the crew and the cast or both, you know, it's um, you have like a miniature family for that time period and everyone's super engulfed into that world, you know, and um, when you're with a group of artists that are very dedicated to it, it's easy to just, you know, 
get into the believability of it. I guess the other thing that I really collect is my experiences like playing music and having instruments. I have tons of musical gear that I just can't seem to let go of. And I just, I use a lot of it. And so, yeah, that's, that's basically it. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's nice that you've got a collection of things that you've used either you've, you know, memories of, of scripts that you've had, but as well as the instruments that you have. Uh, and if you make that into a collection, perhaps you'll collect instruments you don't yet know how to play, but you learn how to play. So that, that's that's really fun. T, did you have any interaction before we move on to Stu and Ryan? Well, I absolutely love the instruments because I think that collecting skills is a, is a great way to go about collecting and a healthy way to go about collecting. And so you know, right on for that. And, uh, you know, being into music, just, yeah, absolutely. I get that. Thank you. Stu, how about you? Thanks for coming to Star Trek Sundays. I know it's really late for you, so I appreciate you staying up for it. Um, do you have a collection that you love and why do you love that collection? Um, I don't really have a collection of material things. I think I, um, don't tend to get attached to a lot of material objects. I do have a collection I keep of software of old computer systems uh, that I really like to mess around with, um, what they call emulators. So, you know, the old, I used to have a Commodore 64, a BBC Micro, all the old 8-bit computers and the games and their programming. And I do like to I run those things every once in a while. It's very nostalgic to go back to those old days of um, messing around on those machines. I also like to make what they call um, a sta emulation stations, which is like a little thing you can plug into a TV to play the games. And sometimes I'll go and see friends and bring it with me or uh, go see family and uh, if they want to sit down. And because sometimes I'll have someone who also grew up with those games or arcade games and they can um, play those games uh, and enjoy playing them. So uh, yeah, that's my collection would be related to software and old computer games and stuff. That is super cool. I'm sure they love doing that because yeah, it's like old toys, but computer stuff, that's really neat. Um, okay, uh, Ryan, thanks for coming to Star Trek Sundays. Do you have a collection that you love and why do you love that collection? Yeah. So, um, I started collecting comic books around 1990 and I collected comic books till I was about 24. And so I have, you know, a few boxes of, of, of books that I've sort of carried around with me since I was like 10 or 11. Um, and expanded on. And at one point, that's just how I explored storytelling, right? Explored through comic books. And that's that was the lens that I looked at the world through, was these superheroes and antiheroes and, you know, dark, dark characters. Because for a while there, I was really into like, things like The Crow and, and uh, you know, kitchen sink press type comic books. And uh, I met a lot of really cool people that way, you know, going to San Diego Comic-Con, going to comic book stores and uh, 
you know, in the 1990s, comic book stores were not segregated necessarily, but there was, there was at least two sides to the store, right? You were the, the gamer playing magic cards on one side, or you were on the other side looking at artwork and talking about artwork and looking at stories. And, uh, you know, it was a magical time period for sure. Thank you for that, Ryan. Wow. You know, I had no idea um, how deep and varied this conversation would be. I just, I love it. And thank you everybody for sharing about how you collect and why you collect and what you collect. It's, it's great. Really appreciate that. This is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse. Our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. To be notified of future shows, please join the club on Clubhouse and our mailing list at StarTrekSundays.com. Today, we are discussing eccentrics, good versus evil. Before we move on to Brothers, T, can you tell us what we have coming up for the next week? Coming up on Sunday, February 12th, is The Burden of Command. Starting with Redemption from The Next Generation, Season 4, Episode 26, which first aired on the 17th of June in 1991, and is a season-ending cliffhanger to the next episode in The Watch Party. In this episode, Picard balances his Federation and Klingon duties as the new Klingon Chancellor Goron faces a civil war. Worf and his brother Kern fight to regain their father's honor followed by Redemption 2, which is Season 5, Episode 1, first aired on the 23rd of September, 1991. So as the House of Duras is nearing victory over Worf and the forces of Goron, Starfleet, led by Picard, works to expose Romulan interference in the Klingon Civil War. Followed by the Siege of AR-558, from Deep Space Nine, Season 7, Episode 8, which first aired on the 18th of November in 1998. In this episode, during a supply run to AR-558, Cisco finds the defending Starfleet unit with over two-thirds of the troops dead and the remaining soldiers' morale extremely low. When the Defiant comes under attack, Cisco, Bashir, Dax, Nog, and Quark choose to remain on the planet which is about to come under attack by a much larger contingent of Jem'Hadar soldiers. Well, that is going to be a a little bit of a change of pace from what we've been doing so far, but I'm really looking forward to this, this episode and what inspired us to do it. So stay tuned for that next week. So thank you for that. Let's move on to Brothers. Can you provide a summary of the episode to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it what it was about? And then I have a question for you. You bet. So Brothers from the Next Generation, Season 4, Episode 3, first aired on the 8th of October, 1990. In this episode, Data experiences an unusual malfunction and takes control of the Enterprise. He finds that he has been summoned by Dr. Noonien Soon, who had been believed to be dead. I chose this episode because Dr. Soon presents a moving target for good versus evil, and watching Brent Spiner play a triple role added an extra layer of flavor. Too true. Thank you for that. Man, I loved this episode. And yeah, what a performance by Brent Spiner in three roles. 
And uh, you had said this, and I totally agree with you when you said that no one else in the cast could have carried that off as well. You know, we were contemplating who could do a double role, who could do this, right? And um, Brent Spiner was just wonderful, as was the editing. It was just, it was great. Uh, I hope we can revisit this episode in part when we do a show about parenting, because the one scene in which the brothers were struggling with their positions in the family and their jealousy over the other with respect to their father's love was really fascinating and so true to the real world. As I said yesterday, after the episode aired, I'm sure some of the writers were questioned by their families the next Christmas. <laughs> was that meant to be me? You weren't supposed to tell them that. So in the meantime, my question Dr. Sung had the unique ability to create new forms of cybernetic life. Can the development of AI and artificial life be viewed as a necessary step towards a brighter future or a reckless exploitation of technology that could lead to disastrous consequences? Oh, such an interesting question because to paint Noonien Sung in a good light is to spotlight his his uh, advances in cybernetic uh, life forms and the positronic brain and how he figured out how to print, uh, prevent the neural collapse, which gave birth to lore and then subsequently data. And by, by many means, this was a technological advancement. But at the same time, he also chose to create in his image. In many ways, he saw himself as transcending his very biology, as creating life forms that were how he thought they should be. And so I think that ultimately does lead to a very dangerous path where we start creating inventions which are capable of taking control of us, right? And I think that we're not that far off from that possibility. And we have to tread very carefully when it comes to this type of work of like artificial life, for example. That isn't to say that we shouldn't do it because we're going to have to. I feel it's inevitable. We have to advance technology. It doesn't make sense not to advance technology, but we have to do so in, in a thoughtful way such that we create things that are ultimately, you know, not at the point at which they, we talked about this last time, at the point at which they are uh, capable of asking for autonomy, that we can trust them to do that without creating havoc. So I think that there's, you know, there's a, a series of decision trees and a lot of them end in nightmares there. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, this was interesting because I know when we first um, well, when you curated these two episodes, I thought, well, there's clearly one evil and one good. And I saw Dr. Sung as the good. And then you asked us to flip the script and say, could we see Fajo as good and Sung as evil? And I just couldn't see Fajo as good. But with Sung, it, it was much deeper. And uh, it really made me think of a, a lot of different aspects of eccentrics now in real life and what they do and perhaps we'll get into that um so i really thank you for um for this contemplation i'm going to start at the uh bottom of the of the stage and i'm going to go to ryan and ask ryan this question can the development of ai and artificial life be viewed as a necessary step towards a brighter future 
or a reckless exploitation of technology that could lead to disastrous consequences. Dun, dun, dun. Well, I, I would say both. I mean, the concept of humans building synthetic humans has been an innate desire in us since the stories of the Gollum and ancient, you know, Jewish mysticism. Um, and so this idea of the technology being both our doom and salvation has always been the case and will continue being the case because it's the double-edged sword, right? Indeed. Indeed. Well, yeah. So like antibiotics on one side, they save thousands of people, but now after decades of abuse, we are at a point where there is antibiotic resistant bacteria that is only going to get worse. And that's something that we did. We did that right through our technologies, nobody else. Right. And I wonder where that tipping point is then, right? Because it, we would never say that we shouldn't have come up with antibiotics. So that that's, that's interesting. We'll have to learn from what we've done in the past that's been disastrous in order to avoid it. Would you say that we could learn that or are we always doomed? Well, it's, it's evolution in a sense, right? Those who die and don't reproduce get left behind. And those who are able to reproduce move forward. And we're, you know, at a time like if you listen to Ray Kurzweil and, and other futurists, we're mere decade, we're like a decade or two away from what's known as a technological singularity. A moment where a human can no longer imagine what comes next. And uh, that's a legitimate concern for a lot of us, I think. Yeah, I think it's a concern and it's exciting in some way. So uh, thank you for that, Ryan. Stu, what do you think? Um, have you considered this? and? Can the development of an a of AI and artificial life be viewed as a necessary step towards a brighter future, or a reckless exploitation of technology that could lead to disastrous consequences? I guess that's a question that the people programming the AIs are going to have to answer. I mean, there at the end of the day, the people who are going to be putting these algorithms into the AIs—they're the ones who are going to be setting up the checks and balances of what the AI can do. Um, so an, an AI that has sentience, but is an isolated unit, completely closed off from the world, can't really do much, right? But if you have an AI, for example, that has access to, for example, in, in the far future of um, being able to generate um, on the at atomic scale, um, replicate things or things like that, then you could end up with problems um, if the checks and balances aren't in place as to what the algorithm can do. Because if it's learning and learning and learning and there's no checks and balances, um, that's uh, what concerns me. But I think on the flip side, the good thing is um, AI, if uh, there's obviously going to be a human limit of uh, it, despite our medical advances, the human body is still going to have a limit to the amount of age. So we've got two options. We can either say, well, are we going to do it by cloning? Is that how we come to some level of immortality? Or could AI provide us with a way artificial, once we can map AI and we can find the symmetry between human consciousness, 
in a way that can be mapped to a computer, um, could this provide us with a, a sort of immortality? So you know, longevity. So I guess their questions that a positive thing that AI could bring. Excellent, thank you. Uh, T, any response to Ryan and Stu? I always have to ask you when someone brings up programmers. <laughs> yeah, I think that what they're saying is brilliant in that um, we already we already see the the um, how weak emergence can draw out seemingly um, sentient machines that are capable of language, you know, of creating language models that are incredibly potent in terms of uh, understanding and, and synthesizing information and taking, you know, large unstructured information and turning it into um, structured information very, very quickly. Like a, you know, a five-year-old who's capable of Googling the internet and reading thousands of documents at once and then a second later, sort of, you know, giving a basic understanding of what what they just read. And so I, I think that when we see more of these types of uh, weak emergence motivate towards strong emergence, where they are um, undergoing evolutionary processes and, and self-correcting and undergoing natural selection and things like that, we're going to see more of these types of problems and this is where the the struggle is going to come in and we are going to have to find uh, a plateau or or at least a you know a stable line along which we can crawl um to where we don't develop these things so fast that we can't that we also don't develop the technologies to help us control these things um in such a way that that generates fairness that generates you know a new life form that can choose to join the federation because that seems like a good choice for what they want and is capable of of being a, a productive member of society autonomously and then we have to be careful about you know not just generating stuff that wipes everybody off the planet right so speaking of creatures who can join the federation because that's what they want it's interesting because I didn't hear Data say he wanted to do that. Fajo asked him, why did you join the Federation? And he said it seemed, I'm paraphrasing here, but it seemed a reasonable match for his capabilities or something. But I get the impression that he wanted to do it, that there's some feeling of achievement. I mean, we see that he's kept his, his medals of honor. And, and the other thing that came up when, when Stu was talking and what you were saying from these episodes was, I still go back to that point when Data refused to comply with Fajo's request to perform, when Fajo wanted to show off his new acquisition, that is Data, to another collector. And Data just stayed there, stayed still and pretended to be a, a mannequin type of thing. And I wonder what that is in what you guys were saying. Like he was clearly strategizing, thinking I'm going to become useless to this person. He wants to show off how real I am and I refuse to do that. And that seems like strategizing. And 
I don't know whether he'd be programmed to do that or whether that's something he might have learned through Starfleet. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. Well, I think he knows that that's that he's an object of interest. I think he's he can he can compute that, right? Is that he has this keen interest in making him subservient to his desires. And so in turn, he chooses to not be interesting because that's how you that's how you deal with a narcissist is you know if, if they um they're, they're looking for your attention towards them then you don't give them the attention right and so he was he was doing that back he was saying okay well what is it he wants i'm not going to give it to him and if i do this enough my his interest in me will wane and therefore he will just simply get rid of me Right. Yeah. When you said narcissist, I was reminded of a term, I think it's called gray rock. When you just don't react. Once again, Star Trek was way ahead of the trend in how to deal with these people. So brilliant and kudos to them. Uh, thank you for that. Marcus, what do you think about all this? Is this AI and artificial life a necessary step towards a brighter future? Or is this going to lead to disastrous consequences? I don't think it's a necessary step for a brighter future. I think that the necessary steps for a brighter future are, you know, in, inward contemplation and cultivating compassion and, and kindness between people and, you know, bringing those down those boundaries between ourselves and the other, um, you know, and bringing people together in that way. I think ultimately that is what would give us a, a brighter future. But as with any kind of technology, it's really how it's going to be used is going to be a reflection of the people using it. So, so long as there's people that want to use this to harm others or to, you know, control other people, then it, there's always the potential for it to be used that way. At the same time, I think that human beings are very creative creatures, and if we can dream it, we'll probably try and make it. So <laughs> I think it's inevitable that we're going down like this route, this route. And I think that it will have, you know, very positive application. Um, but in terms of it being necessary, no, I do not think it is necessary. I actually think that the cultivation of compassion between all, all, all people is what will actually help us to use these tools in a way that is compassionate and and useful and um not not going to be used to harm or control others thank you that's a great contribution i i tend to agree with that yeah we can at least start there while some of us are making these advancements others who can't contribute to that can at least contribute to um, advancing our compassion towards each other. I really like that. Thank you, Marcus. Jamesy, how about you? Can the development of an AI and artificial life be viewed as a necessary step towards a brighter future or a reckless exploitation of technology that could lead to disastrous consequences? Well, in the same way, the universe may in fact be designed to create black holes. Uh, like as far as life not being sustainable in the distant future, like our, our purpose may be to design life that extends our current conception of life. And that just, that just may be like a, what it is, you know, when people get kind of 
become advocates for fearing AI and negative singularity events and stuff. I, I think it speaks to like a real abundance of privilege. Um, it, it, if you want people to be afraid of something that's two or 20 or 200 years away when uh, they're trying to figure out how to put food on the table tonight, like you're just not going to be able to onboard them to that being a problem. They, they just have more more immediate problems. And, it, you know, I, I think like that aspect of the human condition should probably be addressed before we get too wrapped up in worrying about these uh, kind of far out sci-fi in-game analysis. Good points. T, thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that um, it's it's one of those things where we will walk the path that, you know, leads to our um, leads to our success in this matter. Or we're, we're going to just simply blow ourselves up one day and it's going to be lights out. And, you know, I, I don't think that the doomsday scenario is likely. I just think it's something that as, you know, developers, we sort of need to be aware of and conscious of. And when I encountered what I called a um, Oppenheimer moment of my own, I had to take a step back and realized that what I was developing was trivial to weaponize. As a result, I went in a different direction with it. And so, you know, it's one of those things where if, if you don't know the the potential for a gun and you don't have proper regulations, you should probably be thinking twice about making a gun. Now, if you have a need, sure, I get it, no problem. But, you know, if everything's cool and you're just sitting around and thinking about how to, you know, how you can create code or pieces of metal, whatever it is, that are going to kill people, that's a that's maybe something you should think twice about. And that's the point that I'm making. Yeah, T, my, my criticism was directed much more at like the Sam Harris types than you. Um, I, I don't see you as like a problem on that curve. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, I certainly do um, agree with that last message. T, any thoughts? It really is a an interesting time that we live in, and we have so much potential that we don't realize unless we seek these types of technologies that really can bring about an end to fighting, an end to hunger, an end to war, even. Um, and I think that's why these discussions are so important, is because we have to be forward thinking about this stuff. We have to discuss it. We have to drag it out of the, you know, the, the 1990s and into the 2022s and 2023s and, and make it relevant and make it important because it's happening. Because back then, you know, these types of things were just sort of like, you know, fiction. And now we're sort of dealing with faction, if you will. Yeah, we certainly are. Yeah, we, we are science science fiction to science fact for sure let me just put the question to you babs mm -hmm. can the development of ai and artificial life be viewed as a necessary step towards a brighter future or a reckless exploitation of technology that could lead to disastrous consequences i kind of agree with ryan i think both um you know with late stage capitalism being the way it is um of course, it was only a matter of time before we would find a way to work cheaper. Um, so, uh, you know, I think in that regard, you know, 
could possible job loss in the future be a problem? Yes. Um, because if humans aren't needed for jobs anymore, then yeah, that would be a huge problem. Um, but that said, I also think it would be um, a good thing just for the fact that, uh, you know, there's so much that we can do with AI and there's so much that we don't know that AI can do yet that we've yet to discover, I would think. I don't know. I haven't done too much looking into AI, to be honest. I'm kind of a spinster. So uh, that said, uh, I, I think it has uh, benefits on both sides or pros and cons. Right. Yeah. You know, the job loss thing is is something we haven't yet to talk about. And I think that's really interesting because there's some people who worry about it. And then there's some people who say, well, if everybody had a basic income, then we wouldn't have to worry about it. And, and those who want to earn more because they've got a special skill or something to offer, then that would be fine. And um, so, so that's an interesting conversation to have as well. So I'm glad that you brought that up. T, any thoughts on that? Yes, um, I, I definitely would just like to to echo the sentiment in that it's it's one of those things that we really do have to focus on moving forward. And so I'm glad it was brought up. Thanks. Your contributions have been absolutely phenomenal today. This is just a great conversation, lots to take away. So I want to thank you for that. Ryan, did you have any thoughts on the episode itself? We haven't talked much Star Trek today. We've talked all about these hypotheticals. Did you have any thoughts on Brothers? Because it, it was a great episode for me. Yeah, I, I absolutely adore this episode. It's it's so heartfelt. It's so interesting. And to me, um, it brings up issues that people didn't discuss or anticipate in previous episodes about data. Specifically, the episode where they put him on trial to see if he's alive. And no one, no one in the crew ever considered that Data could just decide he's over this this court case and, and walk out. And in Brothers, we see what kind of damage Data can do if he applies himself to surviving at any cost. He took over the Enterprise in like five minutes flat, and no one could stop him. And that, to me, is something that's rarely ever explored with Data. Right. Now... So I understood that he, like, wasn't doing it so much as it was the beacon that was sent out from Sung that all, that took over him because he wouldn't have chosen to do that. I mean, we see at the end he apologizes because he doesn't even remember that he's done that. And he says, I, I, I can't remember exactly the quote, but when he re remembers it, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that I caused so much problem. Right? Well, yeah, but that's that was his subconscious, you could say like his beacon and other things that Soong has mm. put in there almost work as a subconscious. And, you know, when you put baby in a corner, baby's going to fight back. And, and that's the thing. We've never seen data really fight back. Um, and, and I think that's something that the, the episode really shines a light on. Great. Uh, anybody else have any thoughts on either of the episodes before we, uh, close down and head over to a little bit of a looser after party with Steve. Yeah, I was just really moved by the ending when um, Data said to Anuyan, um, you know, I won't be able to grieve for you. And um, uh, he, he said to him, you will in your own way. 
And you can see data processing that for a moment, like trying to think, wait, but I don't have an emotion. How can I grieve? And he was saying, well, you know, he still may um, process over it because he is, you know, he is a being and, and the whole data's entire arc throughout the next generation has been about him becoming more human. And so he's realizing, I think, that even though he might not be capable of emotion, uh, that does not mean that he might have wanted or at least sought more interactions with his um, surrogate father. You know? So, yeah, I was really moved by that comment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that I've thought about a bit and perhaps we'll I've talked to T about this, we'll have to bring it up, is there's so much in these episodes, and especially when we talk about data, like not having emotion, when I think a lot of us can see that he has emotion, he just doesn't express it the same way that a human does. And I think there's some messages there about neurodiversity. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to, to covering that a little bit, because I think it's really important. And definitely, there would have been uh, neurodiverse people on the writing team and on the cast and all the contributors to um, these wonderful shows. So uh, it's interesting because I think when we look at these characters, as we do here in Star Trek Sundays, we're able to think about the things we experience in our own lives in a different way. They help us to feel something for say an android or a person because we all care about data who doesn't have emotion and perhaps that's one of the things that we can do getting to marcus and rachel's point and a few others of treating other people better is if we can care for data then we certainly can care for people who might not express themselves in the same way we do right so uh before i close out t did you have any final thoughts Yes, I used to say that the difference between eccentric and crazy is money. Because if you have lots of money and you're rich, you're eccentric. But if you have no money and you're living on the streets, you're crazy. I don't necessarily see it that way anymore. I, I see eccentric as just being, you know, a, a deviation from some, norm, from some norm, some unique personality trait that you have that gives you a, a fun characteristic in some way. When when these characteristics become poisonous, you know, like collecting other people, in the case of Pajo, um, you know, obviously these are these are things that have to be guarded against. But I don't necessarily see eccentric as you know being related to crazy at all anymore. I think it's actually something that we should probably embrace more and embrace our own eccentricness or whatever the right word there is. Um, and really, you know, let our freak flag fly, if you will. And I think it's okay to to do that. I think it's okay to say, you know, uh, I'm eccentric or they're eccentric. Or and I think we should try and remove the uh, stigma from that. And you know, like like we took back the word nerd, right? We we took that back, and now it's something that you know we nerd out, and and you know, it's a cool thing to do. And we turn that into like maker. Right. You know, and so I think that there's an opportunity here to do the same thing with eccentric and make it OK to be different or deviate from the norm in some way. Right on. Yeah, absolutely. And 
thank you everyone for nerding out with us <laughs> every Sunday. Um, this is and has been Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse. And our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. To be notified of future shows, please join the club on Clubhouse and our mailing list at StarTrekSundays.com. And next week, we'll be discussing the burden of command. And I really hope that everybody who is here can make it for next week. Thank you, everyone, for your contributions. It's been amazing. So I hope you have a great week. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. Live long and prosper.